God is always doing more than we can recognize in any given moment. In fact, if you try to interpret everything that God is doing in any situation, you can pretty much guarantee that you'll be mistaken. Because He's always working in ways that we do not immediately recognize as He works. The Bible very explicitly teaches this in a number of ways. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. So one day they decided to kidnap him. And then they lied to their father about him, gave him the impression that Joseph had been killed by wild animals when they sold him to Midianite traders who were on the way to Egypt. And as a result, Joseph wound up in Egypt, wound up in prison, separated from his family for the rest of his life until later in life. Imagine if you'd been there at any point along the way as those events were unfolding when Joseph's brothers took him and threw him into the pit or when they exchanged money for him with those traitors or when Joseph was on the way to Egypt and then became a slave in Potiphar's household or when Potiphar's wife lied about him resulting in him being thrown in prison unjustly and any moment along the way, if you and I had been there, we'd probably say, this is just pure evil. This is bad news. This is only bad. This is not going to end well. And yet, as that story is told to us in the book of Genesis, what we learn is that at every step of the way, God was at work. Joseph himself makes this very clear in Genesis 50 verse 20, when he tells his brothers who've come to him for food because now he's second in command, the second most important person in Egypt, he tells them that though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Listen to his words. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, when Joseph was being carried away by those Midianite traders, God wasn't finished with him. When he was lied about by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison, God wasn't done with Joseph. God wasn't taken off guard. God was at work. Or think about Paul. In Acts chapter 21, he's arrested at the temple under false charges. And so he has to go before not only the religious authorities, but also the civil authorities. And he's lied about. People plot to murder him. And it looks like along the way that Paul's just being treated unjustly, which is true, but that that's all that's going on. That Paul is having a difficult time in his life. And you could almost think that if you'd been there, when Paul's put in prison and is left there for years, God's done with Paul. Paul's ministry's over. But what we learn by reading the rest of Acts is that that was God's way of getting Paul to Rome so Paul could preach the gospel in Caesar's household. God is always doing more than it looks like He is doing in any one moment. We see this most clearly displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, just go there for a moment in your mind's eye. There is this Messiah, this one who came claiming to be the eternal Son of God, the one who claimed to be fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies about God's salvation, and he stretched out in his life's blood's going from him on that Roman cross. All hopes are dashed. All dreams are now finished. It looks like everything is over. Imagine if you'd been one of the apostles there. Your hopes had been set upon Jesus Christ, and there's Jesus Christ. <laughs> Mistreated at the hands of religious and civil authorities and his life's blood being drained from him. And you look at that horrific event, that greatest miscarriage of justice that has ever occurred in human history, and it looks like all loss. But we know better. In that event, God was doing his deepest work of redemption to save sinners from sin. He's always doing more than what we can fully measure. Learning to recognize that God works this way in his world to accomplish his purposes will help us to not only live with joy and confidence, but also to live with a great sense of wonder and praise to this God. His riches and wisdom and knowledge are deeper than we can measure. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. No one can fully know the mind of our Lord. No one has ever been his counselor. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now some of you will recognize that that's the way Paul ends Romans chapter 11. That's the doxology that erupts from him as he brings to a close this doctrinal teaching in this majestic book. He pauses to reflect on God's providential dealings with his old covenant people, Israel. And he just can't help himself but to erupt in praise. Well, today we continue on in our study of Romans chapter 11. And specifically, we're going to start looking at the second part of this chapter. More specifically, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15. Romans 11, verse 11 through verse 15. In these verses, we see Paul beginning to explain God's providential dealings with the Jewish people. In chapters 9 and 10, Paul has stated that he has a deep desire to see his fellow Jews come to know Jesus Christ savingly through faith. But for the most part, in Paul's day, these longings went unfulfilled because most Israelites in Paul's day, as today, clearly reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah. In Paul's day, together with today, they have fallen away from God, and God has obviously rejected them as a people. In chapter 11, Paul explains the relationship between God and Israel currently and in the future. As we saw previously in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11, Paul makes it clear that God has not totally rejected the Jews. There are some Jews in Paul's day, as there has been throughout history, who do indeed trust Jesus Christ savingly. Paul points to himself as exhibit A to prove his case. He's a Jew, and yet he is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. 
Today, what we'll see in our text is that just as God's rejection of Israel was not total, neither is His rejection of Israel final. There is a future for the Jewish people in God's saving purposes. So let's look at Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, and read down through verse 15. And as we read, pray that the Lord would illumine our thinking, teach us the truth of His Word in this significant portion of it as we study it together. Romans chapter 11 is found on page 947. Our text is beginning in verse 11 and 15 through 15. So if you're using a Bible provided for you, page 947 will get you to our text. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. God has not finally rejected Israel. If we think back to what Paul has just written in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, we see that he teaches there that God has hardened the Israelites in their rebellion against him. In verse 8, he cites a couple of Old Testament passages to explain that God has given to the Israelites a spirit of stupor drunkenness almost, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. But even though God's rejection of Israel is not total, it is real and it is significant. So that raises the question then that Paul asks in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, he's asking, is corporate Israel's rebellion against God and refusal to trust Jesus as the Christ fatal? Is it permanent? Will it always be this way? That's the point of the question. Is the Jews' rejection of God's grace in Christ irreversible? Well, Paul considers their current rebellion as a stumble, as a misstep, as tripping up. Well, has that happened for the purpose of their complete apostasy? That's the meaning of the word fall here. It means to be destroyed. Will the current unbelief of Israel result in their final rejection by God? Is he forever finished with the Jewish race as a people? Well, after what Paul has written about their obstinacy and hardness, we might expect the answer to be yes. And it looks like Israel has completely blown their opportunity to experience God's blessing of salvation in Christ. But the answer that Paul actually gives is a decisive no. By no means. God has not finally rejected Israel. Now to prove his point, Paul explains how God's providential dealings with both Jews and Gentiles impact both groups. His dealing with the Jews 
has blessed and will bless the rest of the world, the Gentiles. And his dealing with the Gentiles will ultimately result in blessing for the Jews. Christopher Ashe has studied this passage and he looks at it in terms of three processes. And I found that to be helpful. So I want to just cite those processes for you that you can see throughout the rest of chapter 11 as we work our way through it over the next weeks or next studies that we continue on in this chapter. To see these processes help us understand the flow of Paul's argument here. So the first process is this. Mercy is offered to Israel, but is rejected by most of them. So God comes and he gives them his grace and mercy. He shows it to them, and yet most of them reject it. The second process is that Gentiles are brought in to the experience of his mercy. Mercy overflows to the rest of the world. The Jews reject it, and in their rejection, it overflows by God's kind purposes to the Gentiles, to the nations. The third process is that Israel is brought in. Israel is made envious and jealous, and then some of them are softened to receive the offered grace from God. These three processes that we see in Romans chapter 11 lead to two results that are expressed in our text this morning that I want to focus on. The first is, Salvation for the Gentiles. And the second is salvation for the Jews. So let's look at these verses under those headings. Israel's sinful rebellion leads to salvation for the Gentiles. Through Israel's trespass, Paul says, Gentiles are saved. You see that in the middle of verse 11. It's not that God has finally rejected Israel. Rather, Paul writes, Through there, that is, the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then again in verse 12. Now, if their trespass, that is, the Israelites, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? The purpose of Israel's being hardened against the gospel was not so that they would be cut off from God forever. Rather, it was for the purpose of bringing salvation to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting to note how Paul holds together the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people as he explains to us this relationship between God's purposes and Jews and Gentiles. There's a harmony in Paul's mind, between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is the one who hardened the Israelites. Verse 7, as you recall, teaches that. But the Israelites are responsible for their own trespass. They are the ones who actually sinned against God and rejected his offers of grace. The result of this is that salvation extended beyond Israel to those who are not Jews. As verse 12 puts it, their sins, the sins of the Jews, results in riches for the world. Riches for the Gentiles. Paul says the same thing in a little different way in verse 15. God's rejection of Israel means reconciliation for the world. Their rejection. By that, what he means is their rejection by God's. God's rejection of them. That word rejection means 
removal or elimination. He rejects them as a people. To be reconciled to God is to be accepted by him for the sake of Christ. It means to be forgiven by him and welcomed into his family. The point that Paul is making is this. Israel's rebellion against God and God's rejection of them as a people was designed by God as the means by which he would provide salvation for the whole world. This is the point of that parable that Don read earlier from Matthew 21 about the owner of the vineyard and the tenants. He builds a vineyard. He gives it to tenants. He sends his servants to the tenants and they stone them and they beat them and they kill them. He sends his son to the tenants representing the Jewish nation and they kill him. So he takes the vineyard and he gives it to others. Jesus is telling us how the gospel was going to spread to the nations in that parable. He's telling us what God's purposes have been from the beginning and the strategy that God is going to employ to fulfill those purposes. Furthermore, when you read the book of Acts, you see this happening in exactly this way. When Paul goes to a town, what's the first thing he does? He goes to a synagogue and he preaches to the Jews. And when the Jews reject him, what does he do? He goes to the Gentiles. Consider, for example, Acts 18, where we have the case of Paul being in Corinth. And this very pattern manifests itself. In Acts 18, verses 5 and 6, we read this. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was the Jesus. So he's gone to the Jews first. Verse 6, and when they, the Jews, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is the way that God historically has caused the gospel to spread to the whole world. It was always his purpose for the gospel to be for all the nations. Paul is describing the strategy that God used to fulfill those purposes. Now, we can only speculate at this point, but I've thought about this a little bit. And had God not done it this way, can you imagine what would have happened if the gospel had flourished only among the Jews? You read in Acts 15 about the Jerusalem Council, where those, some of those early Jewish Christians were convinced that, yes, you need Christ to be reconciled to God. He is the Messiah, but you must become a Jew in order to have the Messiah. And that council ultimately determined that that was not true, that Gentiles could go directly to God through Christ without having to become Jews. But can you imagine if the Jews had in mass come to Christ, the gospel probably would have prospered among the Jews and not been so readily sent out to the nations. We think about God's ways in his world. Using difficulties to fulfill his purposes. I mean, some of you have experienced very severe difficulties in recent months or over the last couple of years. You've suffered loss and reversals, upheavals. And it seems like at times you've gone through senseless trials. We should take heart, be reminded 
that God is always working out His saving purposes in the world. And He's using everything that happens, including everything that happens in your life, to bring those purposes to pass. And the global pandemic that we wonder if it will ever end. And the increasing governmental tyranny that we see around the world in our own nation can at times tempt us to think that God is just letting his world spin out of control. But brothers and sisters, that's never the case. Just as he used Israel's hardness to spread the gospel to the rest of the world, so he is using and will use all these upheavals to cause his salvation to spread to more and more people. I mean, think about it. Some of you are here this morning because of what's been going on in the world over the last couple of years. Have you stopped to consider the unfolding events in light of God's way of getting things done? That what God has done globally and in your own life personally is by design to get you where he wants you to be? That you are here now this morning to hear this message because of what God's designs for your life actually are? God intends for you this morning to consider his grace and his mercy. He intends for you to stop and think about what he's done for this world, for sinners, by sending his own son into the world to rescue sinners like you and me. He intends for you to hear this from his word in the context of his people gathered in worship as we pray and acknowledge this to him so that you might be confronted with your only way of salvation and being reconciled to God. God's done that for you. He's done that to show that Jesus Christ is a great Savior of sinners. So are you being saved by Christ this morning? Is Christ your Lord and Savior this morning? Are you trusting Him this morning? If not, friend, recognize you're not here by accident. This is not coincidence. God has done everything that He's done in your life to bring you here today so that you might hear this message, so that you might be confronted with this incredible provision of salvation in Jesus and turn from your sin and be reconciled to God today in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice at the end of verse 12 in our text, Paul gives a hint of an even more glorious future regarding the spread of the gospel. He writes that if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, note this, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, God has something even greater in store for the future when the full inclusion of Israel comes to pass. That word full inclusion is one word in Paul's original language. It's the same word that he uses in verse 25 when he talks about the fullness or the full inclusion of the Gentiles being complete. It suggests the full number, the total number. Paul seems to be saying that when the full number of the Jews experience salvation in the future, that will mean even more riches, even more grace for the rest of the world. Well, that brings us to the second point of our text. Not only does Israel's sinful rebellion lead to the salvation of Gentiles, but it's also true that God's grace in saving the Gentiles leads to the salvation, to salvation for the Jews. The Jews, as a people, 
will be provoked to jealousy. Paul twice uses that word jealous in our text. You see it in verse 11 to make Israel jealous. And then verse 14, his own ministry to make my fellow Jews jealous. The idea is that grace given to the Gentiles will provoke the Jews to jealousy. It will make them envious of the Gentiles, wanting to have what the Gentiles have. Salvation will come to the Jews now and later. God pours saving grace out on the Gentiles in order to provoke Jews to become jealous and receive his salvation even in Paul's day. There was an immediate impact. Paul himself was an example of that. Some, some were being saved. But there will also be an ongoing impact. In verse 13, Paul addresses the Gentile Christians at the church at Rome directly. That church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, as we noted at the beginning of this study. Predominantly Gentiles because of the persecution that had come that had driven many Jews out of Rome. And now he specifically reminds them that God appointed him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the way he sees himself. His primary ministry is to Gentiles. And he says, I magnify my ministry. I'm happy with that ministry. I make much of it. But he does this not to the exclusion of his fellow Jews. Not because he's dismissed his fellow Jews or has no real longing for their salvation, but because he knows that saving Gentiles is God's method of provoking Jews to jealousy that they might be saved also. In other words, Paul says, I zealously carry out my ministry to Gentiles in hopes that by doing so, some of my fellow Jews will be saved. That's verse 14. But this will also have a later and more dramatic impact upon Jews. In verse 12, we come back to that last phrase in verse 12. Do you see it? How much more will their full inclusion mean? The full inclusion of Jews is in Paul's mind. Currently in Paul's day, there was a hardness among most of the Jews. In the future, Paul anticipates a full inclusion from the Jews, literally fullness of Jews. He envisions a day when a great number of Jews will be converted, bringing even more blessing on the world. Now, this, I think, is a key to understanding verse 15, keeping verse 12 and 15 together. Now, very good interpreters are divided on what Paul means at the end of verse 15 when he says life from the dead. There are some who refer to this as uh, see Paul referring to the, the end of history when there will be this great resurrection of the dead. And there are good people who believe that, but Paul doesn't use this language of that day anywhere else. And he does speak very readily of the resurrection of the dead. And so it would have been very simple for him to use the language of resurrection for the dead rather than life from the dead if he was talking about that end of time resurrection. If we read that phrase, verse 15, in a parallel, as a parallel statement to verse 12, as something of a reiteration of verse 12, we gain some clarity, I think, in understanding Paul's meaning here. So let me read verse 12 and then verse 15 and keep them in mind. Look at them together. Verse 12, now if their trespass, the Jews' trespass, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
And then in verse 15, he says basically the same thing. If their rejection, that's trespass in verse 12, their failure in verse 12, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance, that's full inclusion, fullness in verse 12, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In verse 15, life from the dead is equivalent to how much more spiritual riches will come in verse 12. In other words, I think what Paul's talking about here is a great revival in the future that will include the salvation of a large number of Jews turning to Christ. Now, I share this view, at least in part. don't want to accuse him of believing everything that I would think about this, but with R.C. Sproul and Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Murray, which gives me some comfort in disagreeing with other men that I highly respect on this view. The argument that Paul makes here about God's providential dealings with Jews and Gentiles to bring many people from all nations to faith in Christ is really astounding. It's, it's amazing. It's not like what we would think would be the way that he would work. It reminds us that God's ways are always greater than our ways, and he is always working for things beyond our immediate concerns. Consider how this works in what Paul writes in this passage. God chooses Israel and entrusts to them his covenants, his promises, his law, his prophets. In other words, he gives to that old covenant people his message of salvation by grace in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. But the Jews largely reject that message and God rejects them. As a result, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, to the nations, and many are being converted from the nations for Christ. That, in turn, results in Jews becoming jealous of the Gentiles and being provoked to desire to have what the Gentiles have so that ultimately many of the Jews will also be converted. And then the ultimate result of all this will be the manifestation of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, so that all people will say with Paul at the end of verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. God's working. He's working out his plan. It's happening. It will happen. It won't fail. There's great comfort that comes to his people when we see this, when we acknowledge this and when we try to resist every urge to make immediate sense of every little detail that's going on in our lives right now but we back up and remember well god's got a bigger purpose that he's working for he has not finally rejected israel he will yet show mercy to his old covenant people not by restoring the old covenant kingdom on earth but rather by causing many of them to turn from their sin and trust Jesus as their promised Messiah, who alone will bring salvation. God hardened the Jewish people in their sin for the purpose of spreading the gospel to all the nations on the earth. And as more and more Gentiles come to faith in Christ and are reconciled to God through him, God will cause his Jewish people to be Jealous of the Gentiles. They'll be jealous that we Gentiles are inheriting the promises of Abraham. And through their jealousy, they'll be provoked to repent of their sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord. 
Now, precisely how, when this will happen, we're not told. But it's a great hope to keep in mind as we live together as a church. God is doing far more than we can measure in our own immediate lives. He's fulfilling His saving purposes for the world. So, brothers and sisters, what does this mean for us? It means we should live wholeheartedly on Christ and for Christ. We should grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We should enjoy all of the blessings of His salvation. And as we do so, commend His grace and mercy to others by explaining to them the gospel and encouraging them to come to know God savingly through Christ as we have come to know God savingly through Christ. As we live like this, we're fulfilling an even larger purpose that God has for provoking Jewish people to jealousy so that they too will join with us in experiencing the riches of God's grace in Jesus. As we consider these ways that the Lord is working, and as we are privileged to see dimensions of his purpose being fulfilled in us and through us, so we too with Paul will be compelled to offer up praise and thanksgiving to God for the riches of his wisdom and his knowledge. What a God. What a salvation. What a way to live knowing this God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Romans 11 and for what you teach us here about your wisdom, your power, your knowledge, your saving purposes that will always be fulfilled. I ask you to help us to live with the hope and joy that comes from being people who have been included in those saving purposes. I pray for those that are outside of Christ today that you brought here and that you've made dear to us. And there are those that have been prayed for for years who've had many opportunities to consider the claims of the gospel. Lord, would you not today open eyes and show Jesus and reveal Christ in them and bring them into the experience of your mercy and grace in him. We thank you and praise you for your faithfulness to us. Help us to be people who live with confidence and hope and joy because of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.